In God's Word, we turn this evening to the book of Revelation, the last book of the Bible. Fitting place to go as we seek to conclude this sermon series on the coming glory. We're at Revelation 21 and into the first five verses of chapter 22. It's a long section. I thought about just narrowing it down here, but instead I'd like to try to read and consider as a whole these verses. The first eight verses set forward something of the picture of our future. And then from Revelation 21, 9 through 22, 5, it kind of uh, expands on that and sets it forth in a more visionary description of the realities in the first eight verses. So there's a bit of, of overlap, and I'd like to take it all together this evening. Revelation 21, as we look to what God has in store, and there's also, uh, we should say, the things here are future, but they're also present in a way that uh, in the church we, always, we are already experience some of these realities, but not in the fullness that we will one day. So Revelation 21 at verse 1. Now I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away. Also there was no more sea. Then I, John, saw the holy city, new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from heaven saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is with men, and he will dwell with them, and they shall be his people. God himself will be with them and be their God. And God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There shall be no more death, nor sorrow, nor crying. There shall be no more pain. For the former things have passed away. Then he who sat on the throne said, Behold, I make all things new. And he said to me, Write, for these words are true and faithful. And he said to me, It is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. I will give of the fountain of the water of life freely to him who thirsts. He who overcomes shall inherit all things, and I will be his God, and he shall be my son. But the cowardly unbelieving, abominable, murderers, sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars shall have their part in the lake which burns with fire and brimstone, which is the second death. Then one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls filled with the seven last plagues came to me and talked with me, saying, Come, I will show you the bride, the lamb's wife. And he carried me away in the spirit to a great and high mountain and showed me the great city, the holy Jerusalem, descending out of heaven from God, having the glory of God. Her light was like a most precious stone, like a jasper stone, clear as crystal. Also, she had a great and high wall with 12 gates and 12 angels at the gates and the names written on them, which are the names of the 12 tribes of the children of Israel. Three gates on the east, three gates on the north, three gates on the south, and three gates on the west. Now the wall of the city had twelve foundations, and on them were the names of the twelve apostles of the Lamb. And he who talked with me had a gold reed to measure the city, its gates, its wall. The city is laid out as a square, its length is as great as its breadth. And he measured the city with the reed, twelve thousand furlongs. Its length, breadth, and height are equal. 
Then he measured its wall, 144 cubits, according to the measure of a man, that is, of an angel. The construction of its wall was of jasper, and the city was pure gold like clear glass. The foundations of the wall of the city were adorned with all kinds of precious stones. The first foundation was jasper, the second sapphire, the third chalcedony, the fourth emerald, the fifth sardinox, the sixth sardius, the seventh crystallite, the eighth beryl, the ninth topaz, the tenth crystoprase, the eleventh jacinth, and the twelfth amethyst. The twelve gates were twelve pearls. Each individual gate was of one pearl. And the street of the city was pure gold, like transparent glass. But I saw no temple in it. For the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb are its temple. The city had no need of the sun or of the moon to shine in it. For the glory of God illuminated it. The Lamb is its light. And the nations of those who are saved shall walk by its light, and the kings of the earth bring their glory and honor into it. Its gates shall not be shut at all by day. There shall be no night there. And they shall bring the glory and the honor of the nations into it. But there shall by no means enter it anything that defiles or causes an abomination or a lie, but only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. And he showed me a pure river of water of life, clear as crystal, proceeding from the throne of God and of the Lamb. In the middle of its street and on either side of the river was the tree of life, which bore twelve fruits, each tree yielding its fruit every month. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. And there shall be no more curse, but the throne of God and of the Lamb shall be in it, and his servant shall serve him. They shall see his face, and his name shall be on their foreheads. There shall be no night there. They need no lamp nor light of the sun, for the Lord God gives them light. And they shall reign forever and ever. Then he said to me, these words are faithful and true. Shall we bow before our God and ask for his blessing? Oh, Lord, our God, never do we feel more loved than when you speak to us. And so we pray that you would, and that the Lord Christ would speak to his bride, and that he would assure us of his love, and of his goodness, of his tender care, and of his purposes and plans, and of his will and power to accomplish, that we might be strengthened and love him more deeply. So bless us in that way tonight, we pray, that you might have all honor in our souls. Amen. Well, people of God, we have been tracing the coming glory of God to his people, the resplendent radiance of God, the the very presence of God that's coming to, to dwell with the people he has chosen. It's not that we deserve this. It's not that we of ourselves are an attractive people and God is compelled. He can't help himself. It's not that it's love at first sight, but it's that God has loved us from eternity. And he's chosen us to be his people. And he has purposed that he will have a redeemed community among whom he will dwell eternally. And so 
God across the page of Scripture is teaching his people about his plan and his purpose. And he's preparing his people for that. He's unfolding to us this story of redemption. It's a glorious story. It reminds us that God is a God of the past, of the present, and of the future. We, we saw something of the past, God's ways with his people in the past. And we saw God coming to the tabernacle with his glory. We saw God coming to the temple, the Old Testament temple with his glory. And we've seen something of the present, the more recent present with the Lord Jesus Christ, who is the tabernacle of God, and we beheld his glory, John 1.14, we looked at on Christmas morning. And then this morning we saw something of the, the immediate present, the church right now. We are the temple of God. God meets us in worship. He dwells among us by his spirit. But God is also a God of the future. And we looked at Ezekiel's prophecy and Haggai's prophecy, and now this prophetic word in Revelation, it points us to what is still to be. There's a fullness, there's a glory that's still coming. And that's what we want to look at tonight. And as I mentioned, this is a long passage. We won't consider every detail here, but I'd like to draw out what I think are are three prominent features of this passage. It emphasizes, for one thing, the triumph of God and his plan. Secondly, it emphasizes the fullness of God's presence among his people, finally, at the end. And then uh, it emphasized the satisfaction of God's people. So I'd like to consider those, those three points tonight. The triumph of God's plan, the fullness of God's presence, and the satisfaction of his people. Now, John says at chapter 21, verse 2, Then I, John, saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. Uh, throughout this section, it's, it's difficult to separate, isn't it, the, the people of God from the dwelling place of God, that the bride is spoken of here as, as a city, and these two things are, are hard to separate. But, but one of the things we know about weddings, as he speaks here of, of a bride, we know that weddings take, take preparation. Preparation. You think of all that comes together, and all that did come together, if you're married, to, to, to bring you to that wedding day. I mean, you, you can go all the way back to your birth and to your upbringing and to all the things your parents taught you about, about living and about marriage by their own marriage. You, you can think about dating and courtship and, and how that transpired. And you can think, of course, after engagement of all the wedding preparations, maybe Girls a lot more than guys know something about all the work that goes into getting that wedding day ready. There's premarital counseling, perhaps. There's, there's planning about what to wear and how to decorate a building. There's, there's, there's accommodations, where it's going to take place, what venue of a reception. There's, there's maybe planning of a honeymoon, certainly planning of a place where you're going to live after you get married and all of those things. And, and by God's grace, most, most weddings come together. Sometimes there's troubles, there's difficulties. We know someone who had a wedding planned, and then, and then I think the groom's father passed away, and so the wedding was postponed. And then they got ready for a, a new wedding day, and then I think the mom or someone on the other side passed away, and finally just had a, a wedding in a house and got married because all the, the glory and pomp and ceremony wasn't, appropriate or wasn't coming together. Sometimes weddings are postponed. Sometimes they don't happen at all. I've heard of situations where there's been moral failure before a wedding and the whole thing was called off. But 
What the Lord is teaching us here in this picture is that there's coming a wedding day that is a guaranteed certainty, a guaranteed certainty. War is not going to stop it. Maybe you saw when, when Israel went to war, and there's a couple they had on the news that they got married. They were supposed to get married, and then they, I think, got married in the midst of the war or something like that. Things happen, but, but God is in control here. In fact, he says it in verse 6, and he said to me, it is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. Alpha and Omega are the first and last letters of the Greek alphabet. God's the beginning. God's the end. God's the great originator who had a plan, who had a purpose, who chose the people before the creation of the world. And God is the glorious consummator. He is the end who will bring it all to pass. God is not a weak human. He's not subject to forces and powers beyond his control. Uh, The psalmist says that our God is in heaven. He does whatever he pleases. He, He rules over all things. And and so this book of Revelation, and now particularly these last chapters, are, are announcing the news that God's plan will be fulfilled. There's no doubt about it. God's sovereign. God is sovereign. And so what has begun as, a, uh, as the bud of the flower and has been opening up over the pages of Scripture will come to full blossom at the return of our Lord Jesus Christ. The seed planted in Genesis is now revealed as a flower in Revelation here. And in fact, there's, a, there's a, uh, an obvious correlation between Genesis and Revelation here in terms of all that happens here. Just think of the, some of the correlation here. In, in Genesis, we read that God created the heavens and the earth. And now John says, I saw a new heaven and a new earth. In Genesis, we read about the luminaries, the sun and moon and stars being created. And now John tells us in, in the new city, the new Jerusalem, there's no need of, of the sun, for the glory of God is, is the light of his people and their life. In, in Genesis, we read of, of paradise. And now at the end here, we have this paradise garden city where God's going to dwell with his people. In Genesis, there was the tree of life and man was banished from it. But in Revelation 22, here's this river with, lined with the tree of life that we have free access to. In Genesis, there was the devil prowling about, seeking to destroy. In Revelation, the devil is thrown into the lake of fire. In Genesis, man flees from God. In his shame, he hides from God. In Revelation now, it says that we behold the face of God. We bask in the radiance of his face. And so the theme of Revelation is that not the devil, but Christ Jesus is victorious. And in all of our failures, we couldn't undo the plan of God. Isn't that marvelous? No matter how much sin we committed, we could not break God's plan. He will have a people for himself to be glorified among. And no matter how the devil tried, he tried from day one, didn't he? No matter how hard the devil tried, he tried to slaughter the babes of Bethlehem and get Jesus No matter how hard the devil tries, he can't stop God's plan. No matter how hard all the enemies of the world try, nothing in all of creation can stop the Lord from fulfilling his plan. But God's tabernacle is with men, and he will dwell with them, and they shall be his people, verse 3. And maybe you know that's the covenant formula has been echoed throughout the ages that 
each turn, each transition in the Bible, in a new period, we read again, I will be your God and you shall be my people. I will be your God and you shall be my people. And, and it echoes down through the pages and through the corridors of history. And now at the end, it comes to fulfillment. I am your God and you are my people. And, and why does the Lord tell his people all these things? What's the, what's the point of, of giving to his church this revelation? It's to encourage her. I know from those early letters to the churches and the opening chapters that, that they face persecution and they face suffering. And God's saying to his people, let your courage rise and have hope. Because my purposes, not your enemy's purposes, but my purposes will come to pass. The church is still, still despised and hated Churches insulted and assaulted and, you know, all throughout the world. We, it's, it's remarkable how much suffering there is, how much persecution there is in the world. Even on, on this day. And if you, if you look at the church beaten, mocked, imprisoned, killed, you might be tempted to think this isn't going very well. But God says, have you read the last page? Have you read the last page of the Bible? It's glorious. My purposes will be fulfilled. So we have a foretaste of all of this already. We have God with us. We have the Spirit dwelling in us. We have the victory of Jesus Christ over Satan at the cross. We, we have justification. We've been declared righteous and we'll never lose that. We have sanctification going on, the Lord making us holy. But there's something more in store for us, and we're to hope for that. And we're to, we're to take our present status and our present condition and to, to measure it and to weigh it in terms of the guaranteed complete victory that we're going to enjoy. And God's saying to his people, well, maybe you've heard somebody say something like there's, uh, somebody's too heavenly-minded to be any earthly good, used to be a phrase people might say. He's too heavenly minded to be any earthly good. He's got his head stuck in the clouds. But, but the Bible's teaching us that you, you can't be any earthly good unless you're heavenly minded. You can't be any earthly good unless you're heavenly minded. Unless you have seen the glory to come, you are useless to the kingdom. Because the only way to live for Jesus is to be fixed upon this reality. Be certain that this is our destiny. And then... To ask, am I living in terms of what will be? And am I looking upon my sufferings and my fears and my frustrations? Am I, am I measuring them in terms of the certainties in store? History has a goal. It has a goal because it has a God. And the God of history is bringing all things to completion. So that is one of the first themes emphasized here. But a second one is this. We see the fullness of God's presence with his people at the end. What makes the new creation new, what makes heaven heaven, is that, that God will be there. That God will be there in all of his fullness. That, that, that God in all of his love and delights will be present. In fact, you know, we've been watching God's glory coming to, to temples, right? The tabernacle and temple, but now there's this... Remarkable statement made in Revelation 21 at verses 22 and 23. 
When John says now of this new creation, this new uh, city, Jerusalem, but I saw no temple in it. It's interesting, right? You're tracking this whole development of tabernacle and temples and temples being built. And then you come to the end and it says no temple. And yet it's not really that there is no temple, but that there's no temple in the city because the whole city is temple. The whole creation is temple. But I saw no temple in it for the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb are its temple The city has no need of the sun or the moon to shine in it, for the glory of God illuminated it. The Lamb is its light. So now the whole of the new Jerusalem and the whole of the new heavens and the new earth is filled with the radiance of God's presence. All of life is fellowship with God. Now John, throughout this language here, has been suggesting uh, temple. There's all these precious stones which... Uh, are quite a dazzling array of of beauty, but they're reminiscent of the the breastplate of the high priest with its stones. And then there's other temple connections. Uh, You you read of this angel, verse 15, who talks with John. He has a gold reed to measure the city, its gates, and its wall. And it it reminds us of in Ezekiel, when, when the temple, the new temple, the vision Ezekiel's having of a new temple is being measured out. Ezekiel watches as the temple's measured and then in Revelation 21, we have here the measurements of the city. And it's, it's a ginormous city, but it's a perfect cube. It's as wide and tall and long, equal measurements. And you remember that the Holy of Holies, where the ark was contained, was a perfect cube. And so all these connections to temple. But now the Lord is saying, in the perfection of this new creation, there's no need of a separate sanctuary but the whole place is fellowship with God and so you think about how far we've come from the garden of Eden where the whole garden was sort of a temple the whole creation was a temple in a sense but then after we sinned that that the Lord withdrew as it were and and he has sanctuaries formed he has smaller habitats the tabernacle and the temple and these structures and these structures were teaching God's people a couple things they were saying on the one sense that you can't come near to God. There's, there's walls to these structures and there's, there's, there's a veil before the Holy of Holies. And there's this insulation, there's this shield, lest you be consumed by my glory. And yet those structures were themselves a, a proclamation that God was making a way. He would dwell with us. But now you come into the new heavens and the new earth. And there's no more insulation. It's... The veil is removed. The glory of God is full. And guess what? We're not consumed by his holiness. We're basking in it. And we are satisfied. Things have changed. God hasn't changed. God and his consuming holiness hasn't changed. But we've been changed. We've been fit to dwell in God's presence. To rejoice in the beauty of his holiness forever and ever. You know, on that day, we'll probably be saying to ourselves, if I had only known, if I had only known it would be like this, I would have tried harder to live for the Lord. If I'd only known it would be this satisfying, I I would have been able to to put away temptation more easily. If I'd only known it was going to be this fulfilling, I, I would have endured my sufferings more patiently. God's fullness 
will be our life. And so we'll be forever, forever satisfied. Let's think of that finally tonight, the satisfaction of God's people. It's remarkable here what, what's missing in the, the new heavens, the new earth, and in this glorious city. Our, our first parents were led astray by, by Satan, by the evil one. But God came to the garden with a curse, and that curse has affected everything, hasn't it? I mean, our whole, our whole existence here on earth is marked out by that curse that brought the frustrations we deal with every day at work, the thorns and the thistles, and that curse that, that brought all the sorrows related to childbearing, whether infertility or, or, or the pain in giving birth or the, or the difficulties in raising children or the heartbreak of, of losing a child. And that curse brought sickness, it brought disease, it, it brought everything. And now... In the new creation, the curse we read in chapter 22, verse 3, and there shall be no more curse. No more curse. We deserve that curse of God in all of its fullness. The eternal curse to be cut off from God, but God sent his beloved son to bear that curse. Our sin and guilt loaded upon Jesus. And the wrath of God, the covenant curse, crashing down upon him, the weight of a million pounds, and he, he suffered it, he endured it. You know, if anybody deserved all that we're reading about here in Revelation, it was, it was Jesus, he was the perfect man. He was the perfect man. If anyone deserved the joy and the light and the life with God, it was Jesus Christ. If anyone had earned the right to the tree of life, it was Jesus Christ. Instead, he was cut off. He was struck by the hand of God's justice. And yet in doing that, he has taken away the curse. The curse. And he's dealt with all the enemies. Also missing in the new creation here are all the enemies and all the powers of hostility. We have a city here that has, that has walls that are some 200 feet thick. The idea that there's no enemy that can penetrate. It has, it has a city with no night. There's never a threat of darkness and enemies sneaking in. There's no more enemies. Christ has, has dealt with them all. In fact, we read here that there, was, that there was no more sea. Revelation 21 verse 1, no more ocean. And that one catches us off guard. We think, what? We love the ocean. Oregon coast. We, we think of the sea in terms of tranquility and beauty and awesomeness. And, but you know, in the Bible, the waters are often trouble, right? God flooded the earth. Psalmist speaks of the waves and breakers going over him. He sinks in the depths. And in... And in books of the Bible like Daniel and Isaiah and in the book of Revelation here, it's out of the sea that monsters come. Monsters come. And so it's dangerous. Revelation 13, verse 1, that I stood on the sand of the sea and I saw a beast rising up out of the sea, having seven heads and ten horns. And so John, as he's using all this, this is figurative language, I hope you get that. This is not to be taken literally, it's 
It's, it's in picture form telling us about things that we can't imagine. But it's not that we're going to lose anything of the beauty and tranquility of the ocean. But it's the idea that we're going to be free from every force hostile to our God and to his people. We're going to be protected. And there's going to be, what about all, all the damage that our sin has done? Well, there's going to be a place of great healing. The, the tree of life there and the leaves of, of these trees are for the healing of the nations. That in Jesus Christ, everything we've broken is restored. Everything we've marred is, is, is fixed. Everything we've dirtied is made pure and clean. It's, it's life. And John can say there's going to be no more tears there. Revelation 21, verse 4, God, God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There should be no more death, nor sorrow, nor crying, no more pain. Those are all the things that come from the curse, all the things that come from our disobedience, all the things that we in our sin brought into the world. And... What a life of sorrow it is. Many, many tears for God's people. But a day when our Heavenly Father wipes all the tears away. Says it's finished. No more. No more weeping. Can't hardly imagine what that day will mean. And in fact, we have difficulty, don't we, contemplating. How will I ever not sorrow over this or over that? Our lives are, are intertwined with so many people that we love and our history is so involved with so many experiences and, and wrongs that we've done and we, we wonder how could it ever be? And the Bible doesn't tell us everything, does it? But what it tells us is true and certain that God prepares a future for his people in which there is no more pain or sorrow. But instead, but instead, Revelation 22 says that we will see his face. Revelation 22, verse 4, they shall see his face. The glorious beatific vision to see the face of God at last. What is it to see someone's face, but it's fellowship and communion? What a difficult thing it was in COVID, right? When people's faces are covered. And that intimacy is, that relationship is in some way impeded. To not see someone's face, to not see their expression, not see their smile. But at the end of history, to see the face of our God. What a day that will be. My God, how wonderful thou art. Thy majesty, how bright. How beautiful thy mercy seed in depths of burning light. Father of Jesus, love divine, what rapture will it be? Prostrate before thy throne to lie and gaze and gaze on thee. You know, there's that moment, I was just telling someone, maybe it was my children, about, maybe it was this catechism class, I can't remember, but I said the most beautiful part of a wedding, as far as I'm concerned, is just right at the beginning. When the doors open up, when the doors open up and there comes the, the father with the bride. And it's a, I get a special seat as a minister to stand next to the groom. Because there's that moment, right, when he looks up and there she is. 
face to face, about to enter into a lifelong bond of living together face to face. It's a marvelous thing as we read this chapter to recognize that both Christ and his bride will be satisfied on this day. As you read of all these emeralds and jewels and gold, the Holy Spirit is, is laboring the point that this bride of God is glorious. She's decked with the very glory of God. She's, she's radiant. You know, it could be that a wife wonders sometimes if she's attractive to her husband. Maybe she's gotten older and has lost the youthful luster. Or maybe she feels that she's plain or whatever it might be. And she asks him, you know, am I beautiful to you? Maybe as the bride of Jesus Christ, we, we are that bride. And we're saying to our Lord Jesus, I, I don't know how you'll ever be satisfied with us. Spotted. Personalities are spotted, our lives are spotted. But we read in Ephesians that Christ died for his bride to present her to himself without spot or wrinkle or any such thing. And there's coming a day when at last we'll be finished with sin. And we will shine to the glory of our Savior. Because we'll be decked in his glory, in his righteousness, and his holiness forever. Right now, we might feel like the bride asking the question, do I, do I deserve to wear white? On the wedding day, am I pure? Are you really going to take me? And here, this is the word of the Lord Jesus, isn't it? Here Christ is speaking to us, his bride, and his word, and saying, I can't wait. I can't wait for the wedding day when I take you as my bride, the lamb's wife, when I take you as mine forever. The reality is we have hardly any understanding, do we, how close God wants to come to us. But the more we begin to grasp what God has in store for us, how great is his love for us, not because we've deserved it, but because he's loved us, because he's loved us. The more we begin to grasp this, the more we are encouraged, and the more we are strengthened to put off sin, the more we say, Lord, I want nothing to do with the things that offend you. My heart, too, is set upon that great wedding day, the day when you take your bride to yourself forever. So at the end of history is a wedding, a glorious wedding, and we will dwell with God, and God will dwell with us, we will gaze upon the beauty of his face and the love of our Savior spoken over us for all of eternity. May that encourage our hearts as we see the church beaten down. May that encourage our hearts as we wrestle against our own sin. May that encourage our hearts as we grow weary. May we see what's in store for us and seek him together. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for the wonderful promises of your word, for the prophecy, for the true and faithful word. 
And God, we pray that you would write these words upon our minds and hearts that we might not lose hope in this world. Oh, how we rejoice that you are the one who makes your people beautiful. That you are the one who who will bring forth a new city from heaven, not from earth. You accomplish all things. Praise you that this is in your hands. Because, oh Lord, we acknowledge that our hands are too weak. Our hands are too small. Our hands are too sinful. Our enemies are too great. But, Lord, you will fulfill your purpose. We thank you for loving us in Christ. We thank you that we will be with you forever. Oh, Lord, bring us to that perfect day and help us to serve you now in the light of that day. In Jesus' name we ask it. Amen. Let's sing together.